I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, it's a new year. This year I'm going to go to church. And you came. You actually made it to church and you thought to yourself, this one, this year is going to be different. I'm going to, I'm going to make it to church on a regular basis. So let's hear what this man has to say. It's not even that regular screaming guy who usually gets up and talks. So what will he speak on? Let's see what today's topic is. Oh, Leviticus. That was worth getting up for, wasn't it? Let's start the new year right, shall we? The book of Leviticus. If you will, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16 while I make a bit of an apology for why we're going to be there. A number of years ago, I began to realize in speaking with young people that the book of Leviticus is this generation's reason for ignoring the Bible. In other words, for most of my students who have even a distant peripheral experience with the teaching of the contents of this book, it's completely inaccessible, if not utterly offensive. And so they reason to themselves, if this is in your book, (laughs) I don't want to have anything to do with your Christianity. It really is. It's mere existence in the canon of Scripture is so awful to their minds that... uh, They don't want to listen to the Bible. And so, uh, on a dare, I preached through it in a semester at RUF a couple of years ago. (laughs) And I would encourage you, if you ever get interested in the topic of Leviticus, to tune in. You can go on our website and download those lessons and see where it was that we went. The thing, though, that I want to deal with this morning is, in many ways, the very center of the book. It's the action to which all of the book is building. And in many ways, it creates a fulcrum for the rest of the teaching of the book of Leviticus. And it's the, the, the issue surrounding the Day of Atonement. I want to read some selected passages for us this morning before we dive into what I think the Lord has for us today. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram For a burnt offering. Skip down now to verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. By the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Skip down now, if you will, to verse 29. 
And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. On May the 21st, 2008, Will Franklin Chapman, the son of Christian music artist Stephen Curtis Chapman, accidentally struck and killed his own five-year-old adopted Chinese little sister, Maria Sue. My family and I were on vacation at the beach that week when we heard the news, and I think it's safe to say that anyone in America who had a soul that particular evening wept for that family. We cried because it was enough to realize the kind of grief that that family must be experiencing at the loss of a precious daughter. But Chapman actually went on to explain his compounded fear in an interview afterwards When he said, I really just had a deep down concern in my heart that I wouldn't lose two children as a result of this. Because I knew what my son Will was struggling with. Um, I don't know if you have to be a parent to understand where I think you would go with this in this message this morning. But I want you to take note of a peculiar struggle. I, I don't know Chapman or his son or anything about their relationship Or anything about their family. But I know one thing for certain, sheerly from the man's reputation. And that is that he has forgiven his son for that profound tragedy. But I also know this with just as much certainty. That tantamount in Chapman's mind, likely every day since then, has been this question. How do I let him know that he's forgiven? To what lengths can I go to communicate that he still has access, that he's still my son? And I want to be very very careful this morning. Preachers can oftentimes get emotionally manipulative when they tell stories like this one. But I simply introduce it in this way to show how important this question is in God's mind. In Leviticus chapter 16. For the chapters that follow this, and again, you're going to have to do some background to be able to see and know where it's going. You'll begin to see that the book of Leviticus is filled at the beginning with a litany. And by litany, I can't describe to you how detailed the passages get. I always tell my students that uh, Leviticus is where you stopped. Some of you have made wonderful New Year's resolutions that this is going to be the year, doggone it, that I'm going to read through the Bible. And you started, and it was wonderful. You had the creation story this morning and yesterday, didn't you? Right? 
And you'll charge through Genesis with wonderful stories. And, and then there's Exodus, you know, with the, the plagues and uh, uh, Pharaoh and all that wonderful story. Gets a little bit weird at the end of Exodus, you know, with some of the descriptions of the tabernacle. But you power through that. And you get to Leviticus and you just quit. Because the truth is, is there any way to understand the minutia, the detail, the sacrifices, the endless maze of God's instruction for his people? But I would simply tell you, and as shortly as I can, that the, the sacrifices were intended to preach to these people that you cannot just go to this God. There must be blood that is shed, something that we'll get to in just a moment again, to reveal to you the lengths to which you must go for to understand, to, be, to have God's forgiveness. But there is still a question. That is that whenever we see these kinds of details, there's oftentimes a struggle that, that for me, it takes some effort to convince myself of God's willingness to forgive. But oftentimes it's an impossible task to convince myself that I'm actually forgiven. You see where I'm going with this? In other words, in some sense I can understand that God is willing and God has made a sacrifice. But the sense of wanting to know... To be able to appropriate that, to live in the light of the truth of being a forgiven person. How do I do that? Because the truth is, from Leviticus on, you're getting ready to get into the ancient code. (laughs) That is, the clean laws, all the things that God demands of His people, and they are meticulous. And all of a sudden, right there in the middle, I believe that God looks and says, You understand what the sacrifices have done, but I want you once a year... To go through this in order that you may know that you're forgiven. Three thoughts as we look at this. First of all, in order to appropriate this sense of forgiveness in us, we need, first of all, to know that we have a high priest. Second of all, we need to confess our sins. And thirdly, we need to act like we're forgiven. (laughs) We need to know a high priest. We need to confess our sins and then act like we're forgiven, first of all. The first thing out of this point is that we need to have a high priest. And there's a priority to these points, if you will, starting with the most important. You cannot know and have an apprehension of God's forgiveness unless you have a representative. There's got to be a go-between. The high priest was assigned the task to go before God into the last chamber of the temple, the forbidden place of the temple, behind the veil of the Holy of Holies, once a year for the people. And his preparation had wonderful imagery attached to it. First of all, he took off his sort of usually ornate outfit. The priest was usually decked in a beautiful, uh, uh, ornate, very uh, um, colorful outfit, but not on this day. He set aside the beautiful clothings and put on just a simple frock and a linen turban. The outfit would essentially have made him look just like a common slave with nothing to distinguish him from the rest of the teeming masses. Second of all, he would wash and wash those huge bathing rituals because absolute outward purity was demanded for this one who would be an example of inward purity to his people. Finally, he had to prepare animal sacrifices again. In this, as in every single other sacrifices, there will be blood. There will always be blood in dealing with what we stand before when we stand before God. 
But if you look at verses 29 and 31 and 34, and these are actually worth underlining there in your Bible, they all say over and over again that this is a lasting ordinance. In other words, God is saying it will always have to be this way. It will always have to be this way for a people to know and to be able to apprehend that God actually has forgiven them. So much so that Hebrews chapter 9 makes explicit that there is a connection between what the ancient high priests did and what happened at the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, the priests were not simply enacting ancient bizarre rituals. What they were doing was they were providing for us a living object lesson, a a symbolic action that was pointing to something that was to come. So that Jesus began to take these things on himself. Did he not? Think about it. Number one, Philippians 2 says that when Jesus came, he set his glory aside. Sound familiar? Taking on the form of a servant. In other words, Jesus became a poor person. He set his majestic kingship and anything that would distinguish him from the teeming masses aside in becoming the high priest. Secondly, he came with absolute purity, completely washed, uh, having been baptized at the beginning of his ministry and having no lack of inward purity, the writers say. And then finally, instead of offering animals, he offered himself, his own blood, so that he could, at the moment of his death, split that veil that divided his people from the very presence of God. Now, my guess is for the vast majority of you, that was review. Thank you, Les, for three minutes of review. And we look at those things in sort of a benign manner. Yes, Jesus was the Old Testament high priest and he came to do that. But my friends, has it ever occurred to you that one of the reasons why we may struggle with apprehending the grace of God and having a sense of the forgiveness of God changing our outlook is because we breeze right past that. Let me see if I can illustrate this. I had a conversation last night. This is fresh off the presses. Brand new, fresh illustration. Yeah, I mean, you came at the right time. Having a conversation last night with a student that came into my house and had dinner with us and stayed over a while to talk about some things. And at one point, they were asking a question about why it was in RUF we didn't have people give testimonies. And she was like, I just assume you didn't like testimonies. <laughs> and, and I kind of chuckled a little bit and I said, well, I, actually, nothing could be further from the case. I actually love hearing people's testimonies. As long as they're testimonies. I don't know about you. I love hearing what people will say that they've discovered the Lord to be in them and for them. But how many times have you sat through testimonies that are more about the person than they are about Jesus? How often do our testimonies become many biographies of me? Well, you know, there were things going on in my life that I just knew were not right. They were awful. I shouldn't have been doing them. And yet I came to a point in my life where it was a real sense of crisis. And I thought to myself, I just can't do this. And so I made a decision to follow God. And ever since that time, he has just been showering me with blessings. Let's pray. (laughs) Look, in the 17 years that I've been doing campus ministry, it is remarkable to me that when I meet with my freshmen who come up out of Christian homes... Religious schooling and churching week in and week out to ask them and sort of get them to react about their spiritual life. How are things going? And we get things like wonderful things like like youth group and quiet times and things like this. 
I shudder to tell you how rarely the name of Jesus even comes up in someone's reflection about where they are spiritually. And it's made me think that maybe we're missing something. (laughs) If you and God are on the same page this morning, it is because of this man. It is because of this high priest. That is your testimony. It is about him. It is about what he did. I actually wrote a Facebook message. This is weird to talk about because I'm at a certain age where um, I know some of the people who make the art that I love. And I know that Kim Hill has a great relationship with this uh, uh, community. And I remember back in the day when she was cutting records and whatnot that she had the most wonderful song called Testimony. And I remember going to a concert and I wrote this to her in a little note. <laughs> I'm sure she ignored it. Anyway, she actually did write me back. So oh, thanks and whatever. Anyway, bear with me. And she had this wonderful song called Testimony. And I remember her singing at a concert saying, it suddenly occurred to me that my testimony wasn't what was going on with me. It had to be about Him. You are my lifeline. You are my sanctuary. You are my torchlight. You are my testimony. It's always stuck with me. My friends, is it possible that one of the reasons why It has been hard for you to appropriate the forgiveness, to sense that you are forgiven. Is it because it's somewhere along the road, you detached your Christian walk to have something to do with this man? If you are in good relationship with him this morning, it is because of Jesus. And therefore, should not my conversation about my spiritual life have something to do with him? (laughs) And we fear being too smarmy. Oh, yeah, I'm not one of Bible thumping and talk about Jesus. That's, that's poverty, according to what the high priest was wanting to do in us and for us. Little wonder that we oftentimes feel unforgiven when we detach ourselves from the high priest. That's the first thing. But secondly, not only do we need a high priest, but we need to confess our sins. Look, the ritual here gets kind of weird because the high priest got, first of all, two goats. The first one he slaughters and sacrifices on an altar. And that one, of course, is there for the sins of the people. I find it interesting that verse 16 and 17 say something that's very strange, but it sets you up for the second goat. Because it says there in verse 16 and 18, look at it, that the offering is there to what? Make atonement for the holy place. And in verse 18, to make atonement for the altar. Does that sound weird? Why would you make atonement or a sacrifice for an inanimate object? Like a room. Or a piece of furniture, right? But I think the answer is powerful. The reason why those things need to be made atoned for is because a sinner has touched it. Because you touched it. And that sets us up wonderfully for this second goat. The escape goat, as it's literally translated, or what we know now as the scapegoat. This one was different. This is the one who leaves and never comes back. But what struck me about this goat was what the priest does over it before he does something to it. Did you notice this when we read it? Verse 21 says this. Look at it again. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and this, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Did you catch that? 
What must that have been like? Once a year, the priest got up and aired every bit of their dirty laundry. Every bit of it. To speak over it. To say it. For everyone to hear out loud. I really do wonder about this today. My guess is that for some of you, you have thought about the new year. And thought about thinking, you know, this is really the year I want to make a difference for the Lord. I would love to be a better witness for Christ in 2011. I want to share my faith more than I typically have. But I wonder what would happen if we assembled in a place just once a year, maybe even like this, and stood up and prayed something like this. Oh, Lord. We have sinned against you and not done what is right. We are cheaters. We are gossips. We are abusive. We are adulterers. We are fornicators. We are addicts. We have betrayed our friends in the name of social advancement. We have worked more desperately to go out to be seen by others than we have to demonstrate your glory. We've been lazy in prayer and hard working in our sin. We spend more time in front of the television than we do in front of your word. We have disrespected our parents and defied their authority in the name of pursuing our own independence. We have tossed and turned awake at night, not because our hearts are hard, but because we wonder if that girl or guy who just broke up with me would ever like me again. We've been proud and arrogant with our knowledge. We've condescended to other believing, sincere Christians because they didn't believe the same way we did. We have spoken unfair and uncharitable things about the very people sitting beside us in the pew this morning. We've yelled at our children and disciplined them not because they were wrong and we wanted to correct them in love, but because quite honestly we're just bothered by them. We've been quick to criticize. We have nursed addictions to pornography and illicit material of every kind. We have pressured our women, O Lord, into a sexual mold that looks like a porn star. We've been drunk enough this week enough times to clinically be called alcoholics. We've dressed as provocatively as we could and called it innocent flirting. Because we know we can drive the boys crazy. If the world could see our thoughts, it would openly shame us. We have twisted the hard parts of scripture and we've ignored the obvious parts. We have loved ourselves with an undying love. We have been angry at your providence toward us and doubted your provision. We have spent our time ignoring you. And when tragedy finally fell, we pointed our finger at you and blamed you, O God, for the the misery that befell us. 
We are not the men that we want so desperately for them to think that we are. And we are not the women that we so long to have someone notice that we are. Our iniquities have gone above our head. And they are too heavy a burden to bear. Amen. I wonder what would be done. And I'm tempted to sort of challenge all of us to say that before we decide to go out and make an impact on this world, we ought first begin by hoping to communicate to the watching world that we actually believe some of the things that we just prayed about. Because to understand, to apprehend forgiveness means to stop making superficial the problem of our sin. It is a bitter pill. But it is a bitter pill that if not swallowed, will always keep us looking at our sin in sort of glancing ways. Once a year, these ancient people had to hear it all out. Why? Because probably it only took a year to forget and to walk away thinking to themselves, well, 2010 was a tough year, but it wasn't as bad as so-and-so. Secondly, we need to confess our sins. We need a high priest, but we need to do that to let that out. Why? Well, that brings me to the last point, and I'll finish with this. Because you need to act like you are forgiven. The third way to apprehend God's forgiveness is to begin to act like you are forgiven. Because what I'm simply suggesting to you, because I know that sounds horrific, and those are awful things to say in front of you. I recognize that. You didn't come to church for this this morning. (laughs) But what if... What if the mere admission of those things has the ability to open up a door spiritually for us that might actually bring us into something much more beautiful? In verse 24, Aaron is told then again to go and put back on the royal robes. Spurgeon would go on to say that this imagery was what was described a forgiven person. That when humility and the ability to admit that you were wrong... And to say the things that you are ashamed of. When that humility begins to cloak you, Spurgeon would say that it is like you have put on royal robes. You have become attractive. And I don't mean attractive like attractive. I mean attractive like you attract people. People are drawn to others who they know do not have a chip on their shoulder. That it's okay for them to look and say, this is who I am. And here's the awful truth of it. But you know what? I heard that someone named Jesus took care of that. That would be a good testimony, wouldn't it? I have good days, I have bad days. But I hear that Jesus took care of both. So I'm I'm trying to make it. That's a testimony I can relate to. But what happens is, is that begins to open a door uh, to change the countenance of someone from a beggar into a rich man in an instant. And in response to that, there's two instructions that are given. You act like you're forgiven in two ways. Number one, you afflict themselves. This is not bodily harm. They're not sort of cat and nine tailing their backs. Afflicting themselves is the process of what we just went through. <laughs> the process of owning up to those things of which we are ashamed and embarrassed. Afflicting ourselves means cloaking ourselves in humility so that real connection can happen in our relationships again. But secondly, they're also supposed to rest. Don't just afflict yourself, but rest. Now here's my question. How do you do that? 
I don't know about you, but 2010 will be marked by me as yet a banner year of my frenetic, scattered, busy existence. Do you say what I say? How was your year last? Oh, busy. I've been busy. How is it that we learn to rest? And, and, and we're not only talking about a day that's set aside that's unique to celebrate that rest by looking at my job and saying, you will not define me. That's a discussion for another sermon. I'm talking about the REM of the soul. The ability to realize that the reason why I'm running at such a fast pace is because there's something inside me that's not resting. How can I be afflicted and rest at the same time? How can I know those two realities? Can I suggest to you that the only way in which that happens is if we know that we are loved? Do you remember when your children were small and you had to do some kind of discipline? But it was the discipline that actually landed. The older they get, the less it lands. I'm learning this. But when it actually landed... And do you remember in the midst of their affliction how strange it was that they wanted nothing more than anything else than to crawl up in your lap and to be near to you? What created that weird dynamic? It's because at one point they might have thought that you actually loved them. And that the way to hold our afflicted hearts in tension so that it is also resting at the same time will never happen if we don't know that we are not loved. Stephen Curtis Chapman said that he did not remember what he said to his son as he drove his crushed little girl to the hospital. But his brother did. And in the interview that I watched, he said, I remember exactly what my dad said. My father, as he was speeding out of the driveway, rolled down the window and shouted out, Will Franklin, your father loves you. My guess is, is there was nothing more than he could have said to his son that could have been better than that. Because for the heart that longs (laughs) to apprehend forgiveness, we keep our high priest in front of us. We confess our sins and cloak ourselves in humility. And we enter into rest in the midst of that affliction. Why? Because we're convinced that he loves us. Consider that an invitation for you to dive into in this new year. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can already, I can feel the clouds in my own conscience start to billow up whenever we start to talk about things like this. There are all kinds of thoughts that race across the mind that say things like, well, yeah, but he doesn't know what I've done. That say things like, but you don't know where I've been in 2010. And so, Lord Jesus, it's going to take you working by your Spirit in us to speak all of these truths in us. To first of all be able to see you and to stop abstracting our thinking about our lives away from you. Secondly, it's going to take you to give us the courage to sometimes actually admit the things that we don't want to admit are true about us. 
But maybe it might be that we need to hear you say that you still love us. And maybe that's supposed to come through the handshake or the hug or the words of the person who's sitting next to us. Lord Jesus, would you make it so that this might be a place where people not only understand forgiveness, but apprehend it. And make it to be something that transforms them. So that indeed this might be a different year. Not because of some silly resolution. But because they saw you in the face of their struggle. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.